Greetings and welcome to The Pure Report. I am your host, Rob Ludeman, and it's time to bring the virtual Orange, uh, doing all these podcasts uh, now virtually with folks, which is great that we have the technology to do that. And today we are welcoming back uh, Emily Watkins. Now, well, you name change, you're going by your married name now, which is... Yes, yes, yeah. I'll, I'll pronounce it, uh, it's a hard one, Emily Potteray. It is J. It's very Polish. Yeah. That's awesome. That is, uh, that is great. Um, just something new that you decided to do or, or what's, what's the backdrop? Yeah. Well, um, I've been married a couple of years, but I had a kid recently, so I wanted to change my name so that we all three matched. Oh, fantastic. Well, congratulations on all that and Thank you. Uh, resetting the name just so folks know who you are. Cause you're, you're actually pretty well known at pure for all your work in and around AI. And we had you on recently for a great episode. So folks go back and check that one out. Um, today we're going to be covering reasons um, why your data isn't ready for AI, a really cool um, topic. What, what gets you excited about AI and machine learning and, and where those things are going? Oh man, uh, that's a, that's a broad question, but I love it because <laughs> I think that, um, you know, it's still the, the nirvana of being able to, have so much of an existing resource data and to be able to do things with it that you just can't do when you're looking through it manually or visually or, or with humans. So um, being able to find answers faster or being able to be alerted or, or prioritize things a lot easier because you've got this huge wealth of data and algorithms behind it, um, it's really exciting to me. Yeah. And so, I mean, your role, you're a solution architect and you're working around solutions for Pure in this space. Is it the kind of thing where your excitement about, you know, AI and data modeling and things like that, does that, is that infectious? Does that wear off on others? Does that wear off on um, some of the customers and enterprises you're working with when they can see the light and, and find a solution to a really difficult problem? I certainly hope so. You know, one one of the cool things uh, being at Pure is that we're we I work on FlashBlade, which is um, it's a very powerful storage device, right? It's got a lot of capacity and throughput and and performance. And so, you know, if you're kind of talking about FlashBlade, then your AI problems are kind of at a more advanced scale, right? So I love talking about all those initial experiments, you know, what can I hack on my laptop or in the public cloud? But then it's a whole nother level of cool problems and challenges organizations have to solve as they try to scale, you know, where they do need a flash blade because they have tens or hundreds or, or of terabytes or even petabytes of data sets that they have to manage. And you make an interesting point because it sounds like a lot of this is almost like a science project or, or a, you know, a small thing that, that individual users are doing. And really what we're trying to do with Flashblade and, and some of the other education that you're providing is really make this more of a mainstream or a procedural thing or you know, kind of solve some of these problems where people are doing science projects and they're actually resulting in things that, that help the business, that help the enterprise. Is that, is that yes. sort of an accurate yeah. statement? Yeah. And then once you start you know, showing that you can make a difference impacting the business, you want to be able to push that to production. You want to scale it. You want to have 10 more of it, a hundred more of it, right? You want to make sure that you've got security and you've got a QA of your system so that it doesn't kind of uh, evolve over time in a way that you're not expecting. Um, and so we, Pure, sit at that really interesting intersection where people, they want to do more, but there are problems, um, challenges, and, and some of it is thinking about the physical infrastructure. 
How much of it is infrastructure and how much of it is just some of the, some of the challenges and things that we're going to be diving into? Or is it a kind of a mix of both? Is it just a sort of a funny blend? It is an interesting mix of both. And I would say that, um, you know, I was just talking to Brian Carpenter um, yeah. recently. Yeah, he's a great guru on all things analytics and AI and Flashblade. And we're talking about how a couple of years ago, we used to ask companies, you know, are you thinking about AI? Do you have a data scientist? And now, you know, one of the bigger questions that the organizations have to do you have kind of a depth act to your AI? Do you have a way for IT teams to help you manage this scale and the growth of your projects? And um, so the infrastructure side and being able to plan it, um, and, and I'm gonna put in that, that infrastructure, not just physical, but also, you know, like I'm saying that DevOps, software management, maybe you have a, like a continuous integration pipeline testing your AI. That, there's that whole flavor there. And then as well, you, you do have also scaling problems in the deep learning itself, in, the, in your deep learning software stack. So it's really something that, that organizations have to solve all the way across the board. And you know, um, we're talking today about you know, five reasons why your data may not be ready for AI. And you know, we'll dig into that in a little bit, but one of the things I, I hear all the time, you ask people, oh great, you worked on an AI project at your org, you helped lead it, what was surprising to you about the implementation? And they'll say anything. It's such a wide range of what could be an impediment at their org. You know, someone, the first thing they said was lawyers. I didn't know how to work with lawyers so much. Oh you know? God. That's so, really Yeah. 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 It's, it could be anything across the board, which, which means that it's a fun place for us to get in and, and help solve the pieces that we, we can help with. Yeah. But it's almost like a, there's no one size fits all kind of, situation. Uh, it's, there's going to be variables and differences uh, regardless, but I guess that keeps things fun. And that, you know, that as an architect, you're trying to figure out how to solve problems. Um, before we dive in, what is, what is the, the current, you know, crisis situation done as far as your, you know, your work life? I mean, we're all at home, but do you still have access to systems? Are you still testing things remotely? Like what is, what does that look like as an architect and, and, and what's changed or has nothing really changed for those things you would have been doing anyway? That's a good question. Um, System wise, uh, we have, we have really good infrastructure in place. I have access to um, some of the systems that I work with regularly. And as well, I've actually been working with one of our teams in, um, in Australia to build out a deployment of kind of an AI data hub, a, a Kubernetes platform in their environment. So I was going to be remote to that anyways. Um, but, but it is difficult not being able to bounce ideas off your team so readily as if you sit next to them. So we've, we've got a lot of slack going on for my team. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, again, it's great that we have tools like that, but really a situation like this really makes you appreciate the, the, the hallway conversations or the hanging out and bumping into somebody in the break room to get things done. Those are now turning into 30 minute meetings and, you know, sort of long schedules, but uh, we'll, we'll all get through it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I was saying, you know, AI at scale can really touch so many pieces of an enterprise that it's really interesting when I kind of compare notes with my teammates who Maybe I think their project doesn't intersect with mine at all, but then you think, oh, okay, so if an org had to solve this, um, they probably actually have to apply that to AI as well. You know, so, you know, take my colleague, he sits next to me, Bakash, he's great. Um, he's working on, you know, how do people check in their code? Mm -hmm. What if they want to deploy uh, Artifactory? 
you know, for all their code binaries and so forth. Well, they, they actually need to be checking in their models as well and, and treat it just like a software deployment. So there's a lot more similarities across the team than one might expect initially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's dive into what we want to talk about. And again, uh, for folks listening, this is, you know, we're looking at um, ways that we can help improve uh, people's ability or enterprise ability to, uh, you know, to better manage and, and utilize their data. And Emily's got this really great checklist, actually, on things that you need to do and, and five different categories, which is always wonderful and clickbaity when we have a, a nice list of things. Mm-hmm. But let's, I'll, I'll walk you through and let you kind of elaborate on each, each one of those. And, and the first that comes up is, um, is data access. That seems to make sense, right? Uh, the ability for, for uh, you know, all the people that need the data to be able to access it appropriately. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And this is, yeah, like you said, it's, it's kind of a checklist, but it's also a little bit broad, like just to get people thinking about as they're getting ready to scale. Like I said, we've heard from so many different people across different deployments and organizations about what has, what, what they wish they would have known before going into scaling their AI strategy. So this is kind of to get people's minds churning about maybe different topics they hadn't thought about that, that maybe they should look into um, that might come across their path as they scale their deployments. Right, right. Yeah. So let's dig in. So data access is one of them. And, um, you know, this is, this is kind of a good starting point for, for our little checklist because it's as simple as a lot of times an org might have a lot of data and they might have people elsewhere in the org access to the data. I know this sounds really simple, but I can't tell you how many places I go talk to and one team is like, uh, yep, we have some data. And mm-hmm. some other people are thinking, I could hack together a model if I could only get access to this data side. You yeah. know? Yeah. And so a lot of times it's because the data is a little bit siloed, um, maybe especially across teams. And if you don't have the kind of organization level commitment to do the analytics on the data, it's really hard to get the data shared across teams. So that's where you start thinking about Maybe you need some kind of central data hub for data sets so that more teams can access it. How do you prevent teams from just having to copy data around everywhere, which is time consuming and data management is a horrible problem there. Sure. Yeah, so, so just being really efficient about actually getting the data into people's hands. And there's, there's probably various stages of maturity relative to that. I mean, there's probably some that are more immature where you're just, you know, you have these various collections and others that are maybe a little bit further along on, on the spectrum where they're able to do more things or maybe where they have some like next gen tools kind of implemented. But we can, I think we can effectively meet anyone on whatever stage they are on that journey, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. And I tell people all the time, you know, we're talking about deep learning. I talk about deep learning all the time, but you know, you don't have to jump right to doing deep learning at scale in production. You know, if you can adjust your infrastructure a little bit to make it easier for people to access data, you know, then you're going to be giving your organization an opportunity for innovation. You're going to make it so that people can start to run more descriptive analytics, like summary reports, and then maybe they're going to start to do predictive analytics, machine learning, and then you start getting into real-time stuff. So, you know, just take it step by step, but each of those is going to be easier if you've put something in place that will lead to really easy data sharing. 
Yeah, and that's fantastic advice because when I had Farhan on from the Pier One team, that was exactly kind of what he said. He said, "Don't, don't try to boil the ocean right all at once with this, but but take on a few smaller projects and try to accomplish some things to get started, and then and then you'll be able to evolve and go forward." So um, that's that's again really good advice. Um, how about step two around um, labeling of data, proper labeling of data, probably a, a, an important step in this process as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a caution. You know, a lot of times you'll see people are ready to do some kind of training on their data, build some algorithms if they have their data labeled, which means that they know what category it is or what its contents are, right? But we need to be really cognizant about trying to check the validity of those labels. So there have been several public data sites that have been almost disgraced because of um, real domain experts reviewing their labels. So take, for example, there's one that um, was got a lot of visibility called Checkstat. It has a bunch of public um, scan images like mm -hmm. a, of chess and so forth, people getting x-rays. Um, and a radiologist went through and reviewed a bunch of labels and, and then the grew wider and a community of radiologists looked into it and said, you know, if the labels aren't accurate, then the models that we're building off of this can only be inaccurate, right? Yeah. So we really want, you know, one of the stages of the checklist here for labels is to think, you know, what have I done to check the validity of my labels and how did we get domain experts involved to help us make sure that we're on the right path here? So it's almost as if if there's improper labeling or no labeling or the wrong labeling that the it makes the the data needed you know invalid or the modeling won't work right it's just it's just kind of a showstopper yep what about okay so your number three and this one I'm curious about when I was kind of looking through and we were talking through notes around this um, data content what does that mean is that a, you know that you have so much yeah. data and what you need to do for subsets of it or where yeah, exactly what okay okay so exactly I, I, yeah so so this is the idea that you know what do you have like I said when you get start thinking about what data sets do we own and and how do we scale this you might end up with tens of terabytes hundreds of terabytes and what you train off of uh, might not necessarily be your whole data set, right? Like say I'm an autonomous driving company and I have, I have literally 20 petabytes of training data. I'm not going to feed all of that through my model a thousand times to train it, right? That's quite a lot. You probably just need a representative subset, right? But it's going to take some iteration, no matter if your data set is, um, you know, 200 gigabytes or 20 petabytes, if you're subsetting your data, you do want to make representative that it has a um, distribution of all of the contents. So let's say that, um, again, in the autonomous driving example, I might have tons and tons of images of stop signs that I can train off of, but what if it's a stop sign that says um, no right turn on red or, or you know, signs that have a little sign glued underneath them, right? There's all of these examples. Um, it's actually pretty hilarious. You can look online, there's tons of examples of like weird street signs that, uh, that autonomous driving cars have to deal with or wavy street lines that would seemingly mean nothing. And you probably only have one or two instances of those, right? So thinking about how can you, how can you make your training subset be something that is representative and you can reliably train on. 
Interesting. So there's outliers that create challenges, but you want to focus and hone in on those those things that are the most reliable, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You want you want if you want to be able to recognize that you know weird anomalous wavy street line, then yeah. you need to have a lot of it in your. You need to have a representative uh, okay. amount, yeah. not just top. one example right. of it. Yeah. You can't just be one one off because then that doesn't mean anything. Whereas if you have multiples, yeah, I got it. Okay, mm -hmm. good good education for me too. Um, what about number four on on data? Ownership. I mean, this this kind of makes sense, right? Because we've got data just sitting in lots of different places within the org, and I would I would guess this is something that we theoretically could solve with you know with good infrastructure like a FlashBlade. But um, it, having clear ownership of the data um, obviously probably is an important thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right that um, there's an infrastructure side of this, and that's kind of where a lot of places start, and then it may grow even bigger because. You might have a group that collected the data and then another group that is ready to do some analysis of it. And so this ownership one is just kind of a, a warning checklist item because a lot of orgs don't yet have um, some regulations documented for how they're going to use their data, like especially say at a healthcare, a healthcare organization, yeah. say that they've collected this patient data. Did their patients all opt in to having their data be part of AI training? Did their physicians all opt into having their work be used for this AI training? And maybe that maybe those are gating at an organization, maybe they're not. But a lot of times, a lot of times that kind of documentation just isn't in place yet. We don't have a good model across organizations for it yet. So starting to think about um, who legally should have access to the, this data and how should it legally be used, um, just something to start thinking about. Yeah, and very closely related to all the different compliance regulations and things, not just in healthcare, but um, you know, worldwide and regionally um, in, in terms of who has access and who can do what. That makes a ton of um, sense. What about number five, last one, um, data format uh, in terms of your yeah. yeah, so this one, I, I love this, this um, warning item I kind of added. It's based on, on a topic that I look at a lot, which is that Okay, say that you've you've got kind of the, the strategy in place, you've got great organizational commitment, you put some good backbone in the infrastructure to make it shareable. Um, now let's feed a bunch of data through models. Well, um, as you may guess, the format, the physical file format of the data that you feed into the models impacts how fast it can go, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's just um, a really interesting thing we've been looking at is, okay, you have everything in place and you want to be able to just fly through your training, push a really high performance um, of your deep learning training jobs. So what if you change your data from being saved as massive TIFF images um, to smaller JPEGs? Or what if you change it to being saved directly as the tensors? So all of that can impact the throughput of your training job. Is there an impact based on file size too? Because some of these file sizes are going to be larger, smaller. I mean, you're talking about images right now. So you know, if you've got some really hunking images, and again, back to your you know, healthcare or there's other industries, like does that obviously probably have an impact as well? You know, on yeah, yeah. Things, right? Yeah, as you can imagine, like let's say you have this drone with a really great camera and it's pulling in you know, um, 4K, 8K images. Um, you know, those take a while to load, right? Yeah. So if you had to wait for 
all of them to be loaded every time. It's going to be slower than if you pre-tile it or, or chip it into smaller pieces that the training job can consume. And it may be even faster to think about like just storing, you know, the tensor as a binary or, or as a protobuf file, or there's a lot of experiments that we still have to do in this area, but it's something that people are just starting to think about of, I might need to do a little bit of pre-processing or some kind of, you know, intermediate stage processing as part of the beginning of my training job in order to make the throughput of the overall job faster. Interesting. So this is still a, an evolving area, it sounds like, but definitely uh, one that there's recognition that this could actually have an impact on, on improving the cycle time of, of these training jobs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like I said, hopefully these are just five things that give people an idea to think in the, in the back of their minds that, you know, a whole wide range of things can impact how fast an AI project can move. Um, everything from the, the what's in the data centers to how the people interact to um, er, the, everything about the software stack. So um, hopefully this gives people a good quick mental checklist of things that maybe need to start thinking about. Absolutely. And, and very prescriptive as well. And, you know, it's our hope that again, we can, you know, partner with enterprises to help them evolve along this journey and get to really where they're experiencing, you know, real time and transformative, um, you know, analytics, right? Sort of uh, what Absolutely. Machine, machine learning at scale kind of things that, that are a little bit more automated. That's, that's the objective. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, um, thank you for sharing this. Any place that you want to send folks to go for more information? I know, I think you've just um, fired up a new blog. Uh, at least I noticed that you're doing a little bit more recent yeah. blogging. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So on the pure storage blog page, uh, if you go to the AI section, we've got a whole bunch of new blogs out. A lot of them have a DevOps focus to them. So really thinking about how you can scale uh, and support more and more data scientists. So please go check that out. Awesome. Check that out. And uh, if you're interested in what Flashblade can do for, um, for your AI and analytics projects as well, you can go to purestorage.com and uh, click on Flashblade or go to the solutions and click on modern analytics and uh, follow through with other information that we have. Hey, Emily, always a blast to have you on. Let us do this again soon. And uh, please stay safe out there and we'll, we'll be in touch soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. I love your insights and I always learn something. And uh, we will go ahead and wrap. As usual, everybody, thank you for listening, for telling a colleague and for supporting the Pure Report. We will keep the episodes coming to you and keep you entertained during, uh, during this time of crisis and interesting times. And with that, uh, we'll wrap for Pure Storage and Emily Watkins, Poderai. Did I get it right? Close enough. Ah, darn it. I was trying. Pottery. Thank Pottery. you. I've said it a few times. Thank you. Uh, Pure Storage Emily Pottery. This is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. <laughs>